So do you have a personal motto? You know, like a little catchphrase, a slogan. I mean, just like something in your life that you use for all your decision-making, something that, that drives who you are. Maybe one of them is something like carpe diem or eyes on the prize or YOLO or gunga, galunga. You know, maybe you got one of those. Some people may not have a motto. They may not have a slogan. Their, their life is functioning through their bucket list. Yeah, they're, they're trying to make sure that they, they get all these things in in life, and that's kind of where their focus is. Maybe you've got a, a bucket, bucket list, and, and one of the things on your list is, is to write a book or to, to learn a new language, maybe plant a tree. Maybe on your bucket list is to get in the Guinness Book of World Records for eating the most Kraft macaroni and cheese during a quarantine. Maybe, maybe you've got that as a goal. You know, companies, they have slogans. They've got mottos. Some folks have gone to great length to create some that are fake and, and phony and a little funny. So I, I picked just a few, some kind ones that I thought would, would give us a bit of a chuckle. Uh, chapstick is a good one. Chapstick, you'll misplace it before the tube is empty. That's true. Coffee Mate helps you pretend to like coffee. Yeah, you know who you are. This is a good one. Starbucks, we serve you decaf if you're rude. Yeah. This one actually has to be true. Bless their hearts. Ikea, we throw in extra parts just to mess with you. Mm-hmm. We've all experienced that, or at least some of us have. You know, slogans, mottos, bucket lists, they're, they're good. They're, they're helpful. We can use them for so many different things in so many different ways, but they can also be discouraging. How? Well, what if they don't work out like you thought they would? What if that carpe diem YOLO bucket list doesn't get checked off the way you hoped it would? When that happens, someone has said wisely that, that all of a sudden, then time becomes our greatest enemy. Because we begin to look at, at all those things that, that we're not able to do. What if I don't get that scout badge? What if I don't get my driver's license? What if I don't get a, a thousand likes on my social media post? What if I don't get to go to the prom? What if I don't get married? What if I don't have kids? What if I don't get to see the Grand Canyon? What if I don't get a job? What if I don't get to skydive? What if I don't get to see the world's second largest ball of twine? You see how that works. All of a sudden, this, this list that can be good and helpful, it, it turns dangerous and discouraging because it might not happen. We might not be able to check those things off the list. And so what should we do? Well, we need a better motto. We need a, a motto that has the capacity to work no matter what's happening. We need a, a motto that works at full capacity, 
No matter what's happening with our health or our emotions or the government, no matter what happens with with travel or money or school or work, we need a motto that never fails. So is there a motto like that? Well, there is. Simon Peter was one of the closest friends that Jesus had on earth. And he wrote a letter to some friends who were suffering. They were anxious, they were frustrated, they were afraid, they felt unloved, they felt like they had been forgotten, and they felt like nothing was going to change. Anybody feeling like that today? So Peter wants to encourage them, and how does he do it? Well, let's find out. 1 Peter chapter verse 10. For you once were not a people. That's definitely how to encourage somebody, right? Just throw a big L on your forehead and say, hey, you're a bunch of loser nobodies. That's it. That's a good way to win friends and influence people. So, so what's he doing here? What, what is this about? Well, what he's talking about is identity. He's talking about identity. What is the most defining question in your life? What is the the one question in your life that influences every single aspect of your life? It's a question that, that goes like this. Who are you? Who are you? You know, when we find ourselves in that moment when we're looking in the mirror, we're driving down the road, and we begin to ask, who, who am I? You know what we usually do? We we usually start with the titles that we have in life. Like, for instance, I'm, I'm a son, and I'm a brother, and I'm an uncle, and I'm a, a husband and a father. I'm a, a son-in-law. I'm a brother-in-law, my, my sister-in-law's favorite, by the way. I am a South Carolinian. I'm a pastor. I'm an American. I'm a donutitarian and a Baconarian. I have a lot of titles in life. What about you? What what are your titles in life? Are you a student? Are you a sibling? Are you a spouse? Are you a parent? Are you a teenager? Are you a senior adult? What are your titles in life? And, And are those titles your identity? You know, some people try to find their identity in their their favorite sports team or their favorite brand of truck or their favorite charity, or their favorite political party, or their favorite hobby, their favorite brand of of soft drink. There's a lot of different things in life, a lot of different titles that we have, interest in life, so to speak, that define a little bit of, of who we are to some degree. But they are not the ultimate definition of our identity. Our identity is is deeper. So what is the ultimate definition of our identity? Well, that question can only be answered with another question, and that question goes like this. Where are you in relation to God? Where are you in relation to God? Now, there's about 7.5 billion people in the world. And about 3.6 billion of those people, generally speaking, believe in the concept that there is one true God. 
That means there's about 3.9 billion people in the world that, generally speaking, do not believe in the concept of one true God. Therefore, mathematically speaking, there, there are more people in the world who would not agree with the idea that your identity is defined by your relation to God. And, and that's a, a fair point that we need to make. And just for those of you watching at home, don't ever use any math you hear from me on a term paper or on a social media meme, all right? Those, those are just numbers. I'm just trying to, to paint a picture that there are many people who do not say my identity is defined by my relationship to or no relationship to God. So how do we respond to that? Well, the Apostle Paul, it has been estimated before he was 21 years old, had the equivalent of, of two PhDs from, from the training that he had. He also was a guy who hated Christians, <laughs> severely hated Christians, to the point that, that he was always involved with persecuting Christians, and he oversaw the execution of Christians. But then something happened in his life, and that intelligent, educated, zealous, successful man started writing things like this. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that right now all over the world, as every continent engages with the unknown dangers of unseen germs. It means that every woman and every man and every boy and every girl, all of us are having something pressed. And what is being pressed? What's being pressed is our conscience. What's your conscience? Well, it's not a little angel on one shoulder and a little devil on the other one, okay? That's not it. I found a great definition that's really helpful for conscience. It goes like this, Joe Carter. Conscience is an internal, rational capacity that bears witness to our value system. I'm going to read that again. Conscience is an internal, rational capacity that bears witness to our value system. The witness of what you value. That's, that's your conscience. And so what Paul's getting at in, in Romans is this. He's saying that around the world today, there are people, and they might fight it, and they might push against it, they might reject it, but they have been created by the Creator with a witness inside, and that witness proclaims to their heart and their mind and their soul that there is one true Creator. And that one reality pours all of the weight of that one question into my life and your life. Where are you in relation to God? C.S. Lewis wrote a, a super fun series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. In one of the books called The Silver Chair, there's a, a scene where the character known as Jill 
is lost. She's lost, she's exhausted, she's tired, she's weary, she is super thirsty. And she comes up on a stream. And when she gets to the stream, she walks up and as she nears the edge, she looks over and there is this massive lion sitting by the stream. Now the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia book is is the true king of Narnia, Aslan. But she doesn't know that. Jill's just some girl who's lost and tired in a, a world that she doesn't know anything about. And all she knows is there is this massive lion sitting next to the stream that she wants to take a drink out of, and she gets a little afraid. And so she asks the lion some questions. And the answers that she gets from the lion did not cause her fear to fade. And so finally she just says, you know what, I'm just not going to drink from this stream. And the lion says, then you will die of thirst. And Jill says, oh dear, I guess I will need to go find another stream. And the lion graciously and firmly replies, there is no other stream. Our conscience, that that witness inside of us, graciously and firmly is saying, there is no other stream. There is no other God. And if that's true, then the question remains, where are you in relation to God? Paul was writing some of his friends at a place called Ephesus, and he said this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. When it comes to being in relation to God, there's only two options. you either with Christ or you are without Christ. There are no other options. And to many people, maybe even some watching today, that sounds mean and exclusive and, and rude and awful. But, but as someone who is hoping just to get points for writing my name on the SAT, I am so thankful that the most important thing in the universe can be understood in such a simple way by an eight-year-old. And it's so simple that it can keep being embraced by an 80-year-old. The beauty of the gospel is that it is this simple message, come to Jesus. But if you don't, you're separated from all that is good and holy and right and satisfying. Peter's trying to encourage his friends that are discouraged. And so he starts off by giving them bad news. They were suffering. They were anxious. They were afraid. They were frustrated. They felt unloved. They felt forgotten. And Peter says, well, I want to encourage you by telling you, you are a bunch of nobodies. You were not a people. So that's the bad news. What's, what's the good news? Well, he tells them next, verse 10. But now you are the people of God. Two of my favorite people in the world are, are Brent, Mary, and Martin. 
Their daughter, Tess, just turned 12 uh, back in January, just a few months ago. Tess was about two and a half months old when she came into Brent and Marion's family. And a few weeks after Tess became part of their family, Brent was preaching at our church. And I'll never forget what he said that day. This is what he said. You don't earn adoption. Tess was chosen. She was not looking for us. We were looking for her. And the first second my eyes met hers, she had status. It was instant. She was a Martin. And he went on. Everything I had or would ever have was now hers because she was now mine. In the seconds before I saw her, I had never known her. And the moment I did see her, she had everything that would ever be mine. And then he said this. This is what God does. We get the family name and all that he owns. That's what it means to to be in Christ, to be with Christ, to be in the family of God. You get the family name and everything that he owns. You see, it would have been enough if all God did was just send Jesus to the cross to to satisfy the, the penalty of our sin. But God goes further. God goes deeper. Through Christ, he adopts us into his family. He lavishes us with his love. Without Christ, God is your creator, but but you're not in the family. You, You don't get lavished with that love. Maybe today is the day that you quit pushing and you quit rejecting. You you quit making excuses. Maybe today is the day that that you repent and you believe in and trust in and rely on and cling to Jesus as your first and ultimate and greatest hope of salvation and satisfaction, that you cling to Jesus as your greatest treasure. When Peter was looking for a way to encourage his discouraged friends, his friends who were anxious and afraid, his friends who were frustrated, his friends who felt unloved and forgotten. He encouraged them by pointing them to their identity. He he moved them in one single direction. And that direction wasn't religion, it wasn't ancestry, it wasn't patriotism, it wasn't personality, it wasn't political party, it wasn't even medical health. He pushed them in the direction of their identity. He pushed them in the direction of what it means to be in Christ. He pushed them in the direction of what it means to be the people of God. And if your identity is in Christ first and most and always, then according to all that we see in the Scripture, you are safe. Because only The kingdom of Christ is forever. Only his. Peter knew how difficult things were for his friends. He knew how afraid and flustered they were. So he wanted to give them just just one more thing to chew on. One more thing to tattoo on their brain. 
And this is what he said, last part of verse 10. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's the better motto. Maybe we would say the best motto. You have received mercy. You you have received mercy. You didn't have mercy. You had not been pitied. There was no compassion, but, but now you've received mercy. I may have shared this illustration before. I'm not really sure. But imagine that you are in a huge banquet hall at a big celebration for you. Everybody's there, all your family, all of your friends. Everybody's having a a fantastic time. And and a man enters the banquet hall, and he he walks over to the end of the room where the podium is, and and he stands up at the podium, and, and he calls out your name. And he asks for you to stand. And so you stand up, and and everyone in the room is, is looking at you. And the man goes on to make an announcement that, that a decree has been handed down from the highest court in the land, and the decree is connected to you. And he announces the decree, begins to read, and the decree is that you have not always done the right thing, that you have done things wrong in life. And he begins to read them out. He, he reads about how you lied to your parents. He reads about how you weren't completely honest on your taxes. He reads about how you did not help that homeless guy that one day when you could. He, he reads about the different ways that you argued and, and bickered with your spouse and your kids and other people if you didn't get your way. And on and on and on, he just he kept reading and kept reading and kept reading. And then he finished the list, and he makes an announcement. He says, the decree continues, and the decree continued to say that because of the wrong things that you had done, that that day that you would have to be executed for your wrong. It'd bring the room down pretty quick. (laughs) Uncle Stan on the other side of the room would say, hey, turn out the lights, party's over, let's go home. And you, you would be rattled. You would be a little afraid, a little confused. Hey, hey, what's going on here? But then the man continues to read the decree. And he goes on and, and he says that there is a, a way for release from the decree. So goodness, great, finally. And he says there's a, a price that can be paid for release. Fantastic. I will pass the hat around the room. My family or friends here will we'll take up a love offering. We'll get this whole thing squared away. But then he kept reading. And he continued to read that, that the price was unique. And the price for your release was that someone would have to take your place. You could escape the penalty, but someone would have to take your place. And you started thinking, man, who's going to do that? (laughs) Uncle Stan? Cousin Eddie? Probably not. And so your heart, it it sinks a little bit. And then then suddenly, one of your friends from high school jumps up. I'll do it. (laughs) I'll do it. I'll I'll take his place. 
And man, the room just rumbles with cheers and applause. Here's, here's a hero. Here's a brave friend who's going to step in and save the day. But then the man continues to read the decree. And he says that the person who is going to take your place, that person has to be perfect. They have to be someone who has never done anything wrong. And your heart sinks again. Because you're in a room full of the people who love you the most, but you know none of them are perfect. And those feelings of, of fear and frustration and confusion and anxiety, they, they get deeper and deeper. They start pressing in on you. And then suddenly on the other side of the banquet hall, a door opens. And a man walks through the door and, and he walks all the way across the banquet hall. And he walks right up to where you're standing. And he says, my name is Jesus. I'm the only one that is qualified. And I will take your place. Friends, that is mercy. That's mercy. Jesus taking the place, substituting himself for helpless people in need of being rescued, in need of having hope. You see, Jesus is the only one who can change the math. Jesus is the only one who can take things from where you are not a people to now you are the people of God. Jesus is the only one that can take things from where you have no pity, you have no compassion, you have no mercy, to where you have mercy, to where you have hope, to where you have salvation. You know, two of the words that have become a part of our life over the last month are the words curve and peak. We hear these all the time. I was reading something this week from a couple of years back, and, and basically what it said was this, the highest peak in your life is who you are in Christ. Don't, don't miss that. The, the highest peak in your life, your truest identity is who you are in Christ. So if you have not turned to Christ, then you are not in Christ. You are separated from God. You're separated from all that is eternally good and holy and right and beautiful and satisfying and perfect and happy. And being separated from Christ does not have a good ending to the story unless you turn to him. So we plead with you to turn to Jesus today. But... If you are in Christ, then your identity in Christ just became your peak. Your peak that cannot be removed. Your peak that cannot be taken away from you. Marshall Siegel says this about what that means. Love this. You are not who you were. You are not what you feel you are not where you are tempted to fall. Now you are His. That's, that's, that's worth repeating. Just marinate on these words for just a moment. 
You are not who you were. You are not what you feel. You are not where you are tempted to fall. Now you are his. You are his. You are now a child of God. You are now part of his adopted family. And all of that love and all of that grace and all of that mercy, all that he owns, it is yours. You are now part of the people of God. Why? Because you have received mercy. You've received mercy. That is the only motto that functions at full capacity no matter what's happening in your life. At every single moment, the mercy of Jesus conquers all. So, if you don't get that scout badge, if you don't get your driver's license, if you don't get a thousand likes on your social media post, if you don't get to go to the prom, if you don't get married, if you don't have kids, if you don't get the job, if you don't see the Grand Canyon, if you don't get to skydive, if you don't see the world's second largest ball of twine, if your carpe diem, YOLO bucket list doesn't get checked off the way you hoped it would, There is this motto, there is this slogan, there is this moment that cannot fail you, cannot be taken away from you, and it is simply this, you have received mercy. You have received mercy. Mercy. Two thousand years ago, Jesus rode into town on a donkey, and the people they shouted, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." And today, dear Christian, the gospel is shouting to you, "Blessed and happy." and fortunate, to be envied, content, and satisfied is the man or the woman or the boy or the girl who comes in the name of the Lord, who believes in the name of the Lord, who follows after the Lord. Why? Because you have received mercy. You have received mercy, and that motto cannot fail. You have received mercy. Go, run, live in the mercy of Jesus.